And if you forgot, that's okay, but now remember again. Will you be praying for them all this week and the whole time that they're gone? What date do you return? The 22nd. That's a long time, right? Ten days you're going to be gone, and a lot of that's traveling. You know, that's the hardest part of the whole trip is the traveling and getting there and then uh, packing and getting to where you're going out in the middle of the jungle. You know, they're going to the middle of the jungle. Did you know that? I'm not sure it's sunk in with them yet, but it will. And uh, they'll land in the middle of a little dirt patch in the middle of nowhere after going by Kilimanjaro Mountain. And uh, all of a sudden they'll be there. And hopefully I'm gonna pray that the animals come out to see you. Because you know, people spend a lot of money to take safaris there. And uh, we're gonna pray all the animals come out to see you and that you don't get shook up with the baboons uh, that'll be looking in your windows where you're staying at. They will. And don't feed them, because they won't leave you alone then. And uh, so don't feed them. The little monkeys, they won't go away, will they, Ralph? No, they won't go away. Yeah, they look cute, but they'll bite you. All right, enough scaring you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Let it come through sharp and, and fast and a divider. Father, of all that is, we thank you for it, Lord. We bless you, Father, for your goodness and your mercy. Follow us all the days of our lives. Lord, you be glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've been dealing with favor and covenant, and uh, I just can't get off of it yet because we've still got some more mysteries and nuggets to share together. Favor and covenant. I'm not going to review everything about the covenant. It'd be too long. Other than to remind you that a covenant is about relationship. It's not a contract or agreement. It's about relationship. And we are in covenant with the Holy Father through Jesus Christ. He's the mediator, right? It's our New Testament. It's the gospel. It's the blood covenant of Jesus Christ. Puts us into a covenant relationship with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And in that instance, we've learned many things. We've learned that unlike any other covenant, the covenant that we have with Jesus Christ makes us righteous. And the righteousness of God, because we have dealt with that age-old problem, that illness of sin, the righteousness of God puts us in good standing with him. We got that far, and we began to deal with works, and we began to deal with works that release favor. And I wrote to you yesterday that God is in control, and he doesn't favor you, though, holding a shovel and waiting for a hole, right? So that's not how our faith is supposed to work. We're not supposed to just stand on our faith and do nothing with what God has given us. Our faith is an accent to the, the abundance of God, not just for ourselves, but for us to bless as God blesses. And in that instance, faith that works the favor of God is what we're gonna be talking about today as we make some analogies. You know, there's some ethics to our Christianity. And sometimes, in our walk of faith and in the walks of faith and we watch even in others and ministries, the ethics get put aside. And it should not come as a surprise to us 
that the ethics of Christianity aren't often talked about, are they? How many times have you heard about ethics of Christianity in church? We talk about all of the ways to pray and to be blessed and to be, and we go through the theology and the doctrine of the Bible, but we don't talk about ethics. And uh, sometimes, you know, in certain circles, believers get nervous when we bring up ethics, don't they? We do. It begins to push on buttons. It begins to challenge us. And in another way, what it does is it conflicts with, we think it conflicts with our spiritual DNA that says that we don't need to work out things, even though we know there's a scripture that says work out your faith with fear and trembling. There's a reason for that because it's talking about ethics. It's talking about staying focused in on who we are with God and what a holy relationship and covenant we have with him. Holiness is the only way we can describe the character of God in its totality. Holiness. Yes, all the other attributes of God. But God is the only one is as holy as he is. We participate in his holiness because he's made us a new creation. But if we were all holy, like God's all holy, we wouldn't stumble, we wouldn't fall, we wouldn't have bad days, we wouldn't have different times. God is all holy. And so what we want to pursue is the ethics of holiness in our favor. And it seems to contrast and at least conflict some with that spiritual DNA that says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I'm faith. I have faith, and so my faith has saved me. Yes, we're not talking about that faith. There's only one way unto salvation, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ and accepting Jesus Christ. That's a step. It's a major step because that's how we rid ourselves of the sin problem, of the sin sickness. Sin is a sickness. Sin is an illness. Anybody who's full of sin is dying a death, not only here on this earth, but the next one. They have a death sentence. Sin is a death sentence. We understand that. That sentence is lifted in Jesus Christ. But now, we need to understand how we have a living, how we're living in abundance through faith that's working, and we'll touch on it in a moment, faith that's working through love. So, yes, you're saved by grace, accepted in faith, not by any good works that you could do. And on the service surface, when we begin to talk about our stewardship and our ethics, sometimes somebody could say, well, is that legalistic? Let me say something to you. James had to deal with that, didn't he? And he was dealing it within a time, and it was an extension of something we'll study in a moment that happened in a conference in Jerusalem and later in Galatians. And what he said was, he said, show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And later on, he and Paul say that faith that has no works is dead. It's Faith that has no works basically is testifying of a God who's dead. What? Faith that has no works says, my faith is in a God who's dead because he's not, he, I'm not doing anything anymore because he doesn't need to do anything anymore. How many of you know that God never rests? How do you know that God is constantly in motion and in action? He's constantly aware of you even when you're not aware of you in your sleep. He's counting Every hair on your head, even though some of us lose some by the morning, don't we, Don? Don't we? And, but the Lord knows. The Lord is so active 
that there's nothing that slides under his radar, is it? But yet we need to understand that if we get to that point where we have no works, then basically our testimony is that our God is dead. We just have religion. How many of you know that that stone-cold religion is not very active in faith? How many of you know that? Let's, let's go into that a little bit and let's see if we can open our eyes. Father, help us to open our eyes even better and more as we get going. Now, so how does one think through this matter of faith and works? How do we act through it? Well, it's helpful if we go through and look at some of the, the, the examples we have in the New Testament because the New Testament writers and the apostles, they had to deal with the works issue. And my wife was telling me that someone knocked at our door. Usually my house is marked and neighborhoods and the Jehovah Witness don't come, but she, she took a picture and there were these two beautiful women dressed up really nice and contemporary, came up the driveway in a nice car. She didn't know who it was and she opened the door and they were two Jehovah Witnesses trying to do their works on a Friday before they go to their place of worship. Friday is their works day. And they fill out their book and they say how many places they went to, who they spoke to, and they put little check marks to say is it someone worth following back up and where to go to. Very rarely can you invite them into your house and have a discussion with them. I've done it a few times, but they mark me after that and they don't come back, right? That's works, that's religion in works. Now. Judaism and Hebrews should be practicing a religion that works. But unless you're really bound up in that religious spirit totally, it sort of gets put aside. And it's dealt with a couple times a year. And it's dealt with maybe when you're on your way into the temple. Remember I told you about the story of, of the one who was crippled and he was laid at the temple door and when they would come in with the temple, people would give him something because they were on their way into the temple and they wanted, the last thing they wanted to do was a mitzvah, a good work. And they would bless him and that was his job and they had a, an agreement, not a covenant. The agreement was he'll be there, he'll be needing something. He might have had more money than they had, I don't know. But they would put something in his little bushel and he would, he, would, he would bless them, Baruch Atah, and they'd, they'd go on in to the temple and they'd feel good about themselves. They did a mitzvah just before they went in to worship. And remember Peter? Peter was going with John to the temple because John was a wealthier Jew. He had a membership. Peter didn't have a membership. He was from the Galilee. He was a fisherman. You know, he was, he was a rough guy, Peter. He wasn't schooled. Remember, they said, where did he learn all of this? How does he speak like this, this unschooled fisherman? It's like a farmer coming out of Ohio, right? Where did we learn all this stuff? And, and so Peter sort of broke the strain, and here he is that day doing what he did every day for years with, with broken legs. He couldn't walk, and he's looking for a handout for a mitzvah, and Peter says, I don't have any silver. I'm broke. His pockets were turned out. John had already gone in because John saw the guy there so much that he was familiar. And that command to love your neighbor as you love yourself didn't really sink in his heart at that point because John was about going into the temple. 
He was familiar. But Peter, who didn't get in that temple that often, he's looking at this guy and he's saying, wait a minute, you don't need to be like that. He said, I don't have any money. He said, I don't have silver and gold. He said, but what I have, I'm going to freely give you. Get up and walk. This man got up and he walked and all of a sudden the mitzvah on the way to the temple was over with. They needed a new one. And they asked him what happened. He said, I don't know. He said, but all I know is I can walk. I can walk. Faith that has works produces fruit. Jesus said in Matthew that you know a tree by its fruits. He didn't say you know a child of God by the fact that they say, I believe in Jesus. Hmm. In fact, it gets a little tougher on us because the word tells us that even demons believe that God is. But the demons aren't doing God's work. They're doing the Satanistic work, aren't they? They're serving a different kingdom, but a lot of people that are believers don't serve the kingdom with their fruits. And so when the Lord looks and when he's watching what we're doing, in essence, what he's doing is he's monitoring our fruits. And that's what he sees. He sees our fruits. Yes, he sees you washed in the blood. He sees you righteous in the, in the robe of Christ. But, but he, the reason that you're redeemed and saved, yes, is for your soul, but it's to be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. Isn't it? Isn't that the covenant that God made with humanity, with Adam? He said, I, I'm going to make you in my image. The image of three people, the body, the soul, the spirit. You're in my image, both male and female. Now be fruitful and multiply. But in the spirit, we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Our soul's supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Our physical body's supposed to be fruitful and multiply. It's not just a, 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 a compartmented, compartmentalized portion of you. It's all of you. It's all of me. All that I have is all that he is. All that you have is all that he is. He's everything. Really? If you think about it, we would be changing our language, wouldn't we? We would be saying, I really don't own anything. I don't own anything. I've got a lease from heaven for the things, the treasures in heaven. And when I go back to heaven, none of this stuff's going to go with me. I don't own anything. The only thing I own is God. He's my possession. And he says that, you will possess me and I will possess you. That's our possession. And so when we're walking in godliness, when we're walking with a faith that works, we, we distribute fruit. We make fruit. Now what happens with fruit that stays on the tree too long? Some of us have been growing fruit and we don't do anything with it. And it's like fish, it doesn't age very well. It's not like good wine. It's like fish, it stinks. And so that fruit gets rotten and maybe it falls to the ground and the fowls of the satanic kingdom and humanity tread upon it and it has no goodness. Every one of us is growing fruit. You're a fruitful tree. No one one has more of the Holy Spirit power of God than anybody else. It's what you do with it. And God anoints that. And not only does he anoint it, he equips you to do what you need to do with the fruit that you can grow. How many of you know that 
Not every one of us is an apple tree. Not every one of us is a tree that evangelizes. Not every one of us is a tree that teaches. Not every one of us is a tree that preaches. Not every one of us is an apostolic or prophetic gift of God. But every one of us, every one of us is equipped and called of God to multiply. And every one of us has a sphere of influence. How many of you know that? God has given you a sphere of influence. Where we bear fruit is within our sphere of influence. Paul even said, I don't go to somebody else's sphere of influence. I don't bear fruit there. Right? We have borne fruit in Africa. Our team's going back there. We've planted. There's big trees. They're growing. We're going to fertilize them. We're going to help them. We're going to help them to harvest so they can go and multiply and keep on going because God has given us that sphere of influence. I've shared with you that for years I was in Miami, 16 years, and Cuba opened up. And, you know, how many of you know that most of Miami has a very strong Cuban influence, right? I did construction there. You don't dare go in and get a building permit as a gringo. You need some help. You, you need a Cuban to go with you. And they speak Hispanic, and they talk about whatever, and they get done in an hour. You go in as a gringo, you're going to come back three days. That's a fact. And I have a compassion and a passion for the Hispanic and Cuban community there. I was the gringo pastor in, in a Cuban church, Alpha and Omega. And then I became the gringo pastor in a Hispanic church, a very large one, El Rey Jesus. And I had friends that were going and pastors that were going to Cuba. And they said, Cuba, come, come, Pastor Frank, to Cuba with us. You pray for people. I said, I don't speak the language so good. No, no, it doesn't matter. You walk with the power of the anointed. We go with you. Come with us. And the flights were quick, and they were fast, and they were going all the time. But the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, that's not your sphere of influence. Then he said something very strange to me. He said, you will never go to Cuba. I said, Lord, it's 90 miles away. You send me halfway around the world. You put me in prison in the Soviet Union. I came to Egypt, almost lost my leg. I said, I, you put me in the middle of deserts. I've been beaten and, 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 and bitten and sickened, and I want to go to Cuba. It's right here. No, you will never go to Cuba. But Cuba came to us. Some of the pastors would come. I'd pray over them. I'd equip them and send them back because... That was their sphere of influence. I've taught very toughly many times, both Nita and Amwar. Listen, don't, don't get sucked into the Western <laughs> form of business of ministry. We're sick. Western ministry is sick. It needs cured. It's all about who you know and where you know them and what you're dressing and how you're going and what social and fellowship areas you're in and are you towing the boat here and aren't you being critical there and what are you preaching in your pulpit and if you're doing this or touching that or pushing too many buttons, don't. I've told them over and over, God has given them that nation, not somebody else. And I've told them a million, million times, I love you, I'll come there, I'll help teach your leadership, but I'm not going to get up in front of a stadium and preach because you do it better. You speak the language, the people know you, you're anointed for that, all I'm doing is making a show. So I can come back and say, I preach to 100,000, I preach to 1 million people. So what do Western people do? They steal his videos, they put themselves in front of it, and they say that was their crowd. Am I telling the truth? 
And then they ask for money. Western church is sick. It's all about fruit, isn't it? And so it's not really the fruit they bear. It's the fruit that they dare to try and wave in front of people. That's their sphere of influence. Now, can I teach and equip leaders and pastors? Absolutely. I have that gift to go anywhere except Cuba. I think maybe it was a test of discipline. Gene, you know how many times I got asked to go to Cuba? About once a month for 15 years. And I'd have to explain every time, I'd love to go. I love you, I wanna go, You're one, it's my people. But the Lord says I can't go. What do you mean, why would the Lord tell you you can't go to save souls? I said, because I guess you're going. Maybe it was discipline. Maybe the Lord sometimes tests us to see what we'll do and what we won't do. How we'll bear fruit and how we'll not waste the fruit that God gives us to use. So, let me tell you a little theological history story. Back in Acts 15, it deals with circumcision and uncircumcision, right? But let's, let's expand that because that graphic's a little tough just to deal with. Only a few of you are chuckling. Hey, wake up! Hey, 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 hey! That's a little tough to deal with, isn't it? So let's deal with what that really means. What it means is works and no works. What it means is those who have been ritualized into service and those that have been formalized by the blood of Christ into service. Circumcision and non-circumcision. So, the bell rings, and it tells us, starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to go through some quickly if you keep up with me. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Stop, brethren. Brethren, believers. Jewish believers, believers that got stuck in a doctrine, and they were trying to find their way. Now remember, they didn't have the New Testament, they didn't have everything we had, they were coming, I understand, I relate to coming out of the law and not really knowing much at all about the liberty of Christ and how that contrasts everything that you have in the law. So they came down from Judea and they were super religious. And they wanted to have a doctrine they wanted to establish a doctrine that whoever becomes a believer, male, needs to be circumcised. They need to fulfill the, mo, the, the Mosaic law. They need to be in covenant with God in the Mosaic covenant. They weren't enlightened. They didn't understand. And here's the worst part. They figured that if that happened, that was enough. If a male got circumcised and believed in Jesus, they're done. It's almost like today when we have revivals and crusades and after it's all done, somebody tells you we had 222 and a half people saved. Notch, notch, notch. And you get a hold of that ministry. I've saved 10,623 people. You circumcised them all, did you? Then what happened? 
Where'd they go? Where's their fruit? Now, don't get me wrong. The role of the evangelist is to bring the soul in. But the role of the evangelist is not to count that as a trophy. The role of the evangelist is to present the treasure to the Almighty God, Lord. And you know something? From the day that I was saved, I always had a problem with evangelists that counted souls. And today I still do. And I can promisely tell you, I've been in big meetings, I've been in small meetings. I've chased a soul around the earth, Evgeny Lean in Russia, <laughs> all the way around the earth for that soul, not even knowing, quietly in his house, crying with his wife. And I've been in big ones. I've never counted souls. You know why? Because that is to do what? That's to glorify me. That's to glorify the person. What I love is that humble person that has Christian ethics that says, I'm just a servant. God loves you so much that if for some reason he didn't send me, he used a chicken, he used a mule, the rocks will cry out. One of the greatest sermons I ever heard was a great evangelist, he's still alive. We stay in touch a little bit. Elisha Mishwanganyi from Africa. I met my brother Elisha in Jerusalem, and he was a speaker at the Feast of Tabernacles. I was a speaker. We were sitting next to each other, and he had on his African robe. He looking so good, and, you know, his big guy sitting right next to me, and I sort of liked him already because he was different, you know, and he got up, and I'm looking at my watch as we do. I don't wear one anymore, so I don't look at it. And uh, I thought, oh boy, we're going to be here late tonight. It was already towards the end of the night. Elisha got up. He said, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. I was saved from the jungle from witch doctors. My mama was one. They tried to kill me. God saved me. And Jesus Christ loves you so much that he will save you and he will help you to save people. I preached Christ and Christ crucified. He went and sat down. That was his sermon. My mouth went. The formula went away. The place went nuts in the Holy Spirit of God pouring out and people rejoiced in the Lord for 10 minutes. When it was all done, I said, Elisha, I want to jack some of your anointing. He goes, what? I says, I want to jack some of your anointing. I want that. I want that faith that produces works from nothing more than the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. I want it. He says, then come to Africa. And I did. My wife and I went. And I was the only white man invited to a conference that was in the midst of apartheid. Six months before the vote, within all the violence, he made me the main speaker. Do you know how small I felt? How unequipped I felt? And I'll never forget it. God knew my heart. He sent me. Elisha invited me. But God sent my wife and I. And we went far up past Victoria. I don't know where we went. I have no idea where we were at. 
And I felt so inadequate because the people were so eloquent and they were talking from roots, you understand? Not my roots. I could be very comfortable in a Holocaust temple. I've preached there before. I can talk from the roots that I've come from that I know that I understand the streets. I can talk from those roots. But who am I to talk about the roots of the African-American, African, African black population that was suppressed for so long in Africa? Who am I? What can I say? All I could do is repent on behalf of everybody with white skin in the whole world, but they've heard that before. What could I do? Clinton, I didn't know what to do. I had no idea. And I sat there and typically I'm pretty equipped, you know what I mean? I, I'm pretty confident when I get up, I, I got something to say. I, I had nothing, I didn't know what to do. And the man who went right before me, his name was Dr. Perkins. Boy, he was militant. He was from the United States and he was talking militancy. And I said, oh boy, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I like a good fight too, but I don't know that I wanna come into the elections and tell the people that that's gonna do it. And he was talking about violence and he shared about how he'd been beaten almost to death twice at the hands of white police and Ku Klux Klaners. My wife was sitting next to his wife and I had tears in my eyes. My wife had tears, his wife had tears because I could see how broken and angry this man was. And then I realized God sent me for him. And I apologized to the Lord. I said, Lord, who do I think I am? I know what I'm not, but what I have, I'm gonna freely give this man. And when I went up, I went down and I bowed before him on my knees. I said, sir, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for what you suffered. The hands of our country. But I want you to know, God sent me around the world as a broken vessel to minister faith that has love to you. Galatians 5, 6. He looked at me. I said, brother, I pray Jesus heals you. I pray he sears your heart again. I said, please, let's not bring our garbage to these people. God's going to give them a fresh start. And I believe they're going to surpass us in what he will do with this nation. And I was done. His wife and my wife hugged. The four of us cried. Sometimes the assignments of God match the fruit that we bear. God knew the one thing that I believe I can dig deep for his compassion for people. I hurt when people hurt. I don't wear my emotions on my sleeve. I cry in front of you because the Holy Spirit's moving me. I'm a pretty tough guy when I'm out in public. That's how I was trained. 
You can hit me with a baseball bat, I won't cry. That's how I was raised. But God sent me there for that one purpose. Fast forward. About nine, ten months later, my wife and I are at our kitchen table. Briarcliff, Canfield. Our power comes on. Schuler. I typically turned them off. Wasn't really my juice, you know what I mean? For some reason it stayed on. He said, I have a special guest, Dr. Perkins. He's going to share his testimony today. I said, Laura Lee, that's him. In front of all those people, he got up and he shared how he'd been beaten and broken down. But he said, it took me to go to South Africa and a white man to come at my feet and ask for forgiveness for my heart to heal. He said, I'm no longer angry. I'm no longer bitter. He said, I'm set free. Two scriptures. We'll look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Actually, yes. Going from memory now, beloved. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision, religion, seal, ritual, titles, <laughs> numbers of souls saved, things that you've done or haven't done, none of it matters. It doesn't add up to anything. Nor does uncircumcision. Nor does the fact that you're so charismatic, so Pentecostal, so free that you're better than someone who isn't. None of that means anything, but it's faith working through love. That releases the favor of God. Faith working through love. Now, There are a couple laws which are universal. They're a covenant that God has made for us with himself. There's many of them, but I want to just touch these two laws for you today because it's gonna give you great hope. If we could go to James chapter two, verse 12 through 13. Do you know who was at that conference? <laughs> that I was starting to talk about in Acts, in Jerusalem. Paul went there and he was pretty silent. He doesn't talk about it until Galatians 2. He and Barnabas went, but really it took over by the pillars and he called them the pillars of the faith, Peter, James. 
the ones that superseded him. You see, he was the add-on. He was the fringe. But yet he wrote most of the New Testament. If you're like an add-on or a fringe, you're qualified. <laughs> More qualified than the pillars. Ah. For God to use you. If our hearts are right. So now here's James who also understood from that conference that faith without works is dead. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith with my works, he said. He got it. He got the revelation at that Judaic conference so many years beforehand and he put it to work. He was changed. And now he writes this because he got a even better revelation. James chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Speak and so do by the law of liberty. There's a law of liberty. The law of liberty has set you free in Jesus Christ to do all you can do for him. Not free to sin. Unfortunately, there are those who say once saved, always saved. That's not true. You're not free to sin. You're free to be a steward of the holiness of God. You see, we talk a lot about stewardship, but have you considered that you're a steward of the holiness of God? The fire of God is in your hands. The access to the throne room and the holiness of God your spirit the Holy Spirit comes inside of us he's holy we call him Holy Spirit Holy Spirit he's inside of you you're a vessel of holiness so speak and so do speak holiness do holiness bless be like your father in heaven who blesses to be blessed and you will be judged by this law of liberty. What have you done with the liberty? This is for believers. We're going to be judged. There's a judgment seat. Now it's not going to be one. I believe none of you are goats. They're going to be cast off to the left. But just like me, there's going to be a script in heaven. And on the one script, I'm going to bow my head probably like you and turn around and say, oh, those things. Wow. What did I do with the law of liberty? But then there's another one. Next verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who is known, not shown mercy. Judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Judgment, and in that word mercy, it's compassion, it's love, it's grace. Bottom root, blessings ultimate blessings, mercy. Judgment is without blessing to the one who has shown no blessings. The tree that bears no fruit. But, ah, look at this one. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because that other scroll gets rolled out. And it says, do you remember when that person was on the side of the road and you picked them up? Mercy 
cancels judgment. Do you remember that time somebody didn't have enough money in the grocery line and you reached in your pocket and you said, let me help you pay for that? As they had their buggy filled with formula for their baby and baby diapers and baby food. And that mother was all upset because she was trying to figure out what could she afford to put back. But God put you in that position to say, ah, I got it. Who are you? Jesus. Or that time when somebody was just down and out and you just perceived and discerned in your spirit that they just needed someone to tell them, you're okay. It's going to be all right. Or when you go to visit the sick. Or when God puts someone on your heart and you reach out to them. Or when you see something needs done and you step in to do it. And when you realize in your life that who you meet and where you go and what you do, it's not an accident. It's an opportunity for God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. (laughs) And that whole sheet of all of those things that Frank didn't get right Mercy triumphs over judgment. Give the Lord a hand. Thank you, Jesus.